Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 373. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 373 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, mixing engineer, Mark Abrams. Mark has worked with Angel Lopez, Cara Diagardi, Budgie, Effie, Mark Stepro, Ryan Brown, and Kid Runner. And you can read more about Mark at markabramsmixing.com. That link will be in the show notes. Many of you, of course, will recognize Mark because he is the content manager over at Pyramix. So as you would imagine, he's got quite a full schedule of record-making, family, and managing all of the goings-on over there at Pyramix. So very excited to have him on. Mark Abrams coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about staying on top of our money. Unless you are employing a full-time or even a part-time accountant to monitor your financial comings and goings, you need to pay attention. I think many of you listening would be in agreement with me that the bookkeeping end of what we do is probably the least fun part of the process. Booking the gig, that's great. Doing the gig, that's also great. Hell, even invoicing, that's not so bad. Now, following up on the invoice and tracking the money and what you've been doing all year long, that's not so fun, at least for some of us. This comes about because it is February as I record this, and my wife is very adamant that we get our taxes done early. And that involves me going back through QuickBooks and finding all of the expenses that I had, categorizing everything correctly so that the proper write-offs can be had and that I don't miscategorize things. And it's a process. If you don't stay on top of it, month after month because if you wait till the end of the year it's a big herculean task first off if you're not tracking your money in some capacity for your business that's a huge mistake you got to know what's coming in what's going out and to see all that data in front of you over the course of time helps you make better decisions about your financial position i use quickbooks self-employed i'll include a link in the show notes it's my favorite it does the job i can invoice from it if i want I can track a bazillion different accounts. I can create rules to categorize each transaction so that every time that transaction happens, it's categorized correctly. You can run reports, profit and loss statements. You can, of course, share that information with your accountant. In, at least in QuickBooks, you can. I don't know about the other softwares. So everything I say, I'm going to be referring to QuickBooks this entire time. You might be asking, well, what do I have to do that for? I can do that with my bank or I can do that in a spreadsheet. I say do whatever works first and foremost, because if you're getting it done, that's that's key. And if you think you can get it done in the using a spreadsheet or using your existing bank, great. I find that uh, the banks I've used in the past lack in user interface, lack in capability. Spreadsheets, yeah, you know, you could use a uh, you know Google Docs or Google Sheets to do that, or 
or Microsoft Excel. But my point in talking about this is that it's not a fun activity. So unless you're really into getting the individual data from your bank and putting it into a spreadsheet, then I would recommend going with some kind of financial software that is set on autopilot, downloads the transactions every month, and just leaves it up to you to categorize correctly and name transactions that are you know, mislabeled or misnamed. The other part of this is when you're going through your financial activity, if you've waited till the end of the year or even the following year in January or February to go over stuff, you're gonna see activity that you don't recognize. Unless you've kept good notes, sometimes it's hard to figure out what those transactions are you're, because the way transactions are labeled does not always match what you bought. So maybe you bought a plugin or a suite of plugins. They're not always gonna tell you what it is you bought in the transaction label or the company, or the company might have another company name that they use to process transactions. So it's gonna look unfamiliar. So by going through each month and tackling the load from that prior month, then it's fresh in your mind. You know, oh, okay, what's this crazy named transaction? Oh, that's a suite of plugins I bought. Or, the other benefit of going through month to month is you start to see repetitive transactions. Maybe they're subscriptions that you've picked up along the way that you forgot about. I can tell you that by going through my transactions, I've discovered I actually signed up for a couple newspaper subscriptions, you know, digital newspaper subscriptions like, you know, Washington Post or New York Times or, or magazine subscriptions like Forbes or uh, The Economist. You know, sometimes I've signed up twice on different devices because, you know, you're on a device and you go, you see an article and you're like, oh, oh, I thought I had a subscription to that. Oh, I'll just sign up. It's only three bucks a month. And you sign up and then boom, you've got it set up so you're paying them twice. So. That way you can go through and audit what it is you're spending your money on. And sometimes you you might see the things you're spending the money on and it might give you pause. You might think, whoa, I'm spending a little too much money eating out or you know, doing too much DoorDash or maybe I'm, I've got too many magazine and newspaper subscriptions that I'm not even reading. That's the other benefit of using a piece of financial software is it gets you into the habit of seeing where the money is being spent. I think it also brings about a bit of a mindset focus. It allows you to really think about, well, what do I want to do with my money? What do I want to do with the incoming money? Should I be putting more into retirement? Well, I don't have a retirement account. Oh, maybe I need to set one up. So these are thought processes that happen as you're working with your financial software to make your decisions, label your transactions, understand what's happening, understand the ecosystem of your finances. The other benefit of using a piece of financial software like a QuickBooks is that you can invoice directly out of it. And so that allows you to not have to pay for a separate piece of invoicing software. And of course, you know, there's ways of invoicing people directly out of PayPal, directly out of Venmo. Stripe has a lot of integrations across many different invoicing platforms. Whatever you choose is up to you. But if you want to keep it simple, you can just do it directly out of your financial software. Let's talk taxes for a minute. So, of course, I've advocated for the concept of every time you get paid, just take a chunk of that money, a third, and pay it into the IRS, set up an account at the IRS's website. I'm talking for my American audience, of course, not sure how it works in Europe or other parts of the world, but in the United States, you can set up an IRS account, go to their website, and every time you get paid, you can give a third of that to the IRS so that when you get to the end of the year, you're not owing. They're probably gonna end up giving you a little money back in an ideal world. 
Now, of course, if you are a, uh, a full-time employee of some company, your taxes are taken out. So that's a different story. I'm mainly addressing this to the freelancers out there. The other thought too is, is that if you don't want to pay the IRS as you get paid per check, you can make quarterly payments, of course. It's a very traditional way of doing things. And many financial softwares will alert you and say, based on your current expenses and your income, you owe approximately this much money to the IRS, which is very helpful to know so that you don't get yourself in trouble at the end of the year and get stuck owing them a bunch of money. Uh, it sucks. I've been there and the best thing to do is to not ignore it. The best thing to do is if you get caught in that situation is to call the IRS if you don't have an accountant that you're using call the irs and explain i need to make a payment arrangement and i can afford to pay this much per month uh, you'll find that they are generally very friendly sometimes they'll want to you know say you know you should do this like this and they'll want to of course explain how it should be done humor them be cool just make that payment arrangement if you are stuck in that situation and uh, don't get scared just address it be be honest about it and Everything will be cool. You'll get it paid off, et cetera, et cetera. But you'll learn your lesson and you will not wait until the end of the year to pay them next time around. I know many people think it sucks, but it is what the current reality is. And until that changes, this is how it's done. Also, if you are hiring out any kind of contract labor, you know, assistants or uh, people that you're using to work for you that pertains directly to your business, if you're paying them over $600, at least in the United States, you need to issue them a 1099 so that the IRS knows that you paid them that money so that you can write it off as contract labor. The IRS knows you paid that individual, et cetera, et cetera. And what's involved in that newbies is you have to have that person fill out a W-9. You give that to your accountant. And if you're doing the taxes on your own, hopefully you'll understand what's going on there. The W-9 allows you to then, you know, issue them a 1099 document at the end of the year. Generally, those are due at the end of January. Not everybody gets their shit together on that in time. So sometimes 1099s show up, you know, the first two weeks of February. And of course, the obvious with financial software is that you can see how you did this year compared to the previous year or years prior. You can do a little report, get an idea of what's going on. You can also see where the money's coming in with certain clients, with certain areas of your business. And it's just what I would call financial intelligence. It's great to know what's going on so that you can make better decisions because that's what it's all about, really. It's about knowing what's happening. You don't have to be a financial wizard to do this. It's very simple. Uh, you just connect your bank accounts to your financial software. The transactions get downloaded. You need to monitor it once a month, I would say, ideally, because sometimes banks make changes to their authentication systems and they will break the connection with your financial software. I had that happen with American Express this past year. I wasn't staying on top of it month to month. And now as a result, I have to fill in several months worth of data that I can't actually download from American Express for some strange reason. Don't understand that, but now I have to enter in a bunch of transactions manually. So that's it, stay on top of it. Whatever system works for you, do it. Just make sure you know what's going on, what's coming in, what's going out, where you're spending your money, who you're paying, who hasn't paid you. Make those quarterly tax payments. Stay on top of it, friends. It's super important if you want to stay in business. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Mark Abrams here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Mark, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks so much. This is an honor. Oh, yeah. You're making you're gonna make me blush. I told my wife about it. I, I told you about this before the show too, but I told my wife that I was gonna be doing this, and she's like, "Oh, that's the one that you used to listen to in the shower." <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, I'm is. really gonna blush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i get that i've I've heard that before i listened to you in the shower oh okay i don't know how to take that but that's cool that's nice you've got a great shower voice yeah it just blooms in the in the bathroom does it yeah. that's good yeah <laughs> wow i would think it would get lost in the uh the reverberations of a bathroom but right right no thank you this is amazing and just to be the pedigree of this show is you know obviously insane and such an honor to be here and i love everything that you do with the podcast i love the angle that you take of it and this is amazing so well thanks for being here here. i appreciate it i'm i'm a big fan of yours as well and the stuff that you all are doing over at pure mix i think it's such great content such amazing stuff so we'll we'll talk about that, but I want to, of course, talk about you and your personal history and things you have going on. So let's start with my favorite question. Where did you grow up? Ah, okay. So I grew up in Lindenhurst, Illinois. It's 45 minutes maybe north of Chicago, mm. I think. And music kind of started for me a little bit there, but we wound up moving to a town, a much smaller town called Lexington, Ohio when I was maybe 13, I think. So I would say, you know, for most of my formative years, I'm from Lexington, Ohio. <laughs> so, okay. Brothers, sisters? Yeah. Older brother who is quite responsible for getting me into music and amazing guitar player. Just he and I, and we had a band together and all that. And what was your upbringing like with regards to, to music? And did your parents support it? Your brother obviously got you into it. Yeah, I have two of the most incredible parents on the planet. I know everybody says that, but they were completely supportive, which is, as I'm sure, you know, you know, is is such a huge thing when you have a good support system, especially Mm -hmm. in this career. My mom was a a singer in a cover band in her 20s and amazing singer. They grew up in Boston and relocated to Illinois for a job that my dad had got. My dad had a guitar and an old Gibson Skylark amp, and he would play for fun. It's kind of a hobby, but my mom was kind of the professional musician. And I always would kind of see my dad's guitar under the bed, and I would always like want to go open the case up, but I wasn't sure if I was allowed to kind of a thing. But eventually they got me lessons. This is before I was 13. They got me lessons and it didn't really stick because I wanted to do what Michael J. Fox was doing on Back to the Future. <laughs> But the guitar teacher was teaching me Mary Had a Little Lamb. So, right. So it didn't really stick at that point. But after, you know, time, time kind of went on. This is the early 90s. And we're in Lexington, Ohio. It's a small Midwestern town. There's not a lot to do. And my brother started getting interested in guitar because we had a family member also in the Boston area who is professional working guitar player, Michael Moran, amazing guitar player in that that area. And he had live sound experience, had done gigs with Aerosmith and and some stuff like that. And we would go visit them for a couple of weeks every summer. And we just watch his bands rehearse in their basement. They had like full band set up and amazing guitars down there, just amazing collection of guitars. And I would always want to sneak down there and go play with the stuff, but had no idea really what it was. All of that experience kind of got my brother interested in guitar. My brother found Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And then like so many other people was, you know, he was like, hey, come into my room and listen to this. 
And then he would play me Nirvana. And then one day he showed me Pearl Jam on a Walkman. We were like on a walk in the woods and he put the headset on my head. And that was it. I was just like, I have to go find a guitar. And, you know, <laughs> this is what I want to do. Or whatever I wanted to play guitar. We formed a band with a bunch of bunch of friends and made a couple records. And to kind of shorten the story a little bit, we were making our second record in a professional studio, kind of a legendary one in Columbus called John Schwab Recording. And the engineer, John Finnell, who is still very active in Columbus, owns a studio called Relay Recording. He was the engineer for that. And I was, you know, in college at this point, I was maybe 19, so first year of college. And we went in on a Tuesday to work on the record and it was like 11 in the morning and John's like getting Pro Tools ready. And I was in college for computer programming and I saw John pull up Pro Tools on a computer and I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, it's 11 o'clock. It's a Tuesday. He's using a computer. I was like, do you, um, do you do this full time? He's like, well, we're here on a Tuesday at 11 o'clock. So yes. <laughs> I was like, and you're using a computer. It's like, and we're doing music. It's like, so this is, this is a thing you do. <laughs> He's like, yes, it's a thing you do. <laughs> like, how do you think that you have CDs and records? It's like, awesome. That was it. You know, like we finished that record and played in that band for a little while longer and stuff. But I started trying to figure out how do I get out of computer programming and find a school that does this? That's yeah. absolutely what I want to do. So kind of continuing on that line that led me to finding, uh, there were two options. This is probably 1998 or 99. And there was Full Sail and there was the Conservatory of Recording Arts. So I wanted to learn Pro Tools. Those were kind of the two places that you could learn Pro Tools. And Full Sail was insanely expensive and four years long. And the Conservatory was much less and it was a year long. So I was like, well, I'm going to go to the Conservatory. And yeah, that's kind of how I landed in, in college for audio. Conservatory is located, are you talking about the one in Arizona? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was in Tempe, Arizona at the time. They just had one building there. And you were coming from Illinois to Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Ohio at that point, but yeah. Oh, okay. That's right. Ohio. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Had you ever experienced heat like that in your life? No. No, that was definitely <laughs> new. So, yeah. I have a thing about weather, you know, I'm just, you know, I hate snow. Heat I can deal with, but the heat in Arizona is a whole nother ball of wax. Yeah, I mean, people love to say, oh, it's dry heat. It's still 120 degrees outside. <laughs> yes, it is. It'd be dry. Yes, yeah. it is. So you went to recording school. Did you enjoy that experience? Yeah, and going into it, it was kind of a funny thing because there obviously wasn't the resources that are available now. And like, if you're young and feeling like people don't understand what you want to do back then, and you know, before me, it was worse, obviously. But back then, it's like, wait, you want to go do what? You know, like that's not a real thing. So I had friends that were like, I was already messing around with Pro Tools before I had left and I had a Digi 001 Pro Tools version five or something. And people were kind of like, well, don't you already know what you need to know to make records now? And I was like, no, there's got to be so much more. Everything sounds terrible in the car. So when I was there, I would say the biggest takeaway for me was that you get out of it what you put into it. And that doesn't only apply to the school. I think I learned while I was there from watching others that that was going to apply to the entire career. One thing that was interesting was you had a lot of people that would go to the conservatory that kind of didn't know what they wanted to do. And they were, they were like, oh, music, that sounds fun. I'll go be a recording engineer. But they didn't have like the, the passion to stay there around the clock and, and 
all they wanted to do is be in the rooms. Like I didn't want to leave ever when I was there. And mm-hmm. then you would have other people that were like, well, class is over. I'm out of here. You want to go to the bar or whatever. And it's like, no, I don't want to go to the bar. I want to sit at the SSL, <laughs> whatever, you know. It really takes a, a curiosity, a deep curiosity to want to do what we do. And if you don't have an inkling of that, then you're going to want to go to the bar. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was definitely it. I mean, I went there, we would be able to go to class. There was a morning batch of classes and then there was a night batch of classes and you were either in the morning batch or the night batch. So I was in the morning batch and we'd be there until noon or one. And then we'd have to wait until the night classes were over to go back for kind of like free time, which is just, you could go in studios and practice and do whatever. Mm-hmm. So I would always, you know, I'd go to class, I'd go home, study, and then go eat dinner and then go back. And then I would just stay there until like three or four in the morning and then get up and do it again. Mm-hmm. And going about it that way, I would say that my experience was great because I extracted every bit out of it that I could. I've had discussions with other classmates that came out of there and they're like, well, it didn't, I went out and I'm not making records anymore. It didn't work for me. And it's like, well, you, you went to the classes and you showed up for the exams, but you weren't, you didn't completely immerse yourself in it. And I think that that's something that's necessary, probably with any recording school. I would imagine even to this day that if you don't really dive in, because this is definitely not a game of watch a few videos, go to a few classes and completely understand our craft. It's the hundred thousand hours plus that we have to put into it. If there was advice for anybody in school, it would be, you have to put the time in. So start now, I guess. Yeah. And if you're really not into it, get out because it's a lifelong passion really that I think a lot of us are involved in. Yeah. So you graduated, you left Arizona, obviously. What happened from there? So the conservatory had an internship program. So that's one of the benefits to going to a school like that is usually they have relationships with studios and they'll place you. And that was something that the conservatory was offering that made them stand out to me against Full Sail too. Their placement program at the time seemed a little bit more robust. So they would basically call up studios, everybody they had relationships with and say, we have a graduating class. One of our students wants to intern at your studio. Do you have a position for him? And then they would try to help you find one. So you turn in a list of like five studios you wanted to go to. And then they try to work something out. So I had found there was a studio. I don't think it's there anymore, but it was called Studio West in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And I know at the time that I was looking at it, I know Blink-182 was making some of their huge records there. And there were some other records that I really loved that came out of that studio. So that was one of them for me. And they had responded to the school and said, yeah, we have an opening, but we'd like to meet him in person. Can he come out for an interview? So I drove to San Diego before I graduated, met with them, and they said, yeah, this, this seems cool. Give us a call as soon as you've graduated. And they had like my graduation date and everything. And they're like, let us know when you're here and we'll get you on the schedule. So I graduated, drove a U-Haul with my small amount of stuff to San Diego, got an apartment and everything, called them the day after I got there. And they said, sorry, we actually don't have any openings right now. Give us a call in about eight months. So that wasn't great. <laughs> God, that's such bullshit. I hate that. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of panic mode. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And on that note, I'm going to go on a rant here. It's a very short rant. Hey, if you're a studio out there, don't do that. That really screws people up. So how did you recover from that? So in San Diego with Elise, called up the school, kind of panicking because all of the other studios I wanted to go to were in Los Angeles, but now I had this lease. So I was kind of, kind of stuck without buying myself out of it, which I couldn't afford to do. And so the, the school started just calling around every studio they could find in San Diego. 
And they found one called Spotless Digital recording in Ocean Beach, which is just south of Mission Beach where all the tourists go and everything. And this place, it was beautiful. It was right on the beach next to the pier in Ocean mm-hmm. Beach. So like looking out of the back of the control room, you saw the ocean, which was like absolutely gorgeous. It was more of a punk studio. They had a, um, a label there called Clean Box Entertainment at the time that was making a bunch of punk records. And I came in to be an intern and the owner had some, some health things going on at the time. And it, it turned into a really interesting opportunity for me that I was kind of nervous about when it happened because I wasn't sure that I was ready. But I wound up engineering a ton of sessions because it was just a matter of we only have so many people and you're the guy who's available. So guess what? You're recording today. So hmm. awesome and nerve wracking at the same time because it was kind of my first real gig. And over the course of three months, I worked on, I think, five records there. One of them, funny story, was for a punk band called the Yucks. And they were being marketed by their label as the worst, grossest punk band of all time. And it was very true. That was an interesting experience. And I definitely look back fondly on that internship. That was was a good time. (laughs) But when that wrapped up, they couldn't afford to bring me on full time. And San Diego is a very expensive place. So I was kind of looking around at some different things and Los Angeles wasn't really my vibe. Like from everything I had experienced up there, like I'd done some remote recording at like the Troubadour and sat in on some sessions at some other places and stuff. But there was something about it that didn't click with me. And I think it was the whole Midwest thing. Like I just, there was something personality wise that I wasn't feeling from that environment at the time. And obviously like been back many more times since, no shade any LA people, but yeah, it just wasn't for me at the time and it was too expensive to stay. So I wound up going back to Ohio. My parents were, like I said, the the most supportive people ever. And they told me on the phone when I kind of called freaking out a little bit and they were like, you know, if you, if you want to come home and try building a studio here, we'll help you out and we'll, we'll convert the basement, you know, we'll, we'll figure something out so that you can keep doing what it is that you want to do. And it'll be in Lexington, not San Diego, but we'll figure something out. So we, I moved back. My dad came out and helped me drive back to home. And we went to Lowe's, bought a bunch of drywall and transformed my parents' basement into a two-room studio. I think we spent like $3,000 on drywall, just trying to like build out the rooms and everything. And we built it right. It was a good space. But yeah, for probably the next five or six years, I just stayed in Lexington and made records with local bands. Mm-hmm. There was actually a really good music scene in Columbus and in that area at the time. There were handfuls of bands, which was surprising. But after doing that, a couple good records getting out there, people were starting to drive up from Columbus to my parents' house to make their record and stuff like that. So it was a, a really great time. And you didn't quit. See, that's... Didn't quit. I think many people might be completely stumped by the the whole, oh no, call us in eight months and after you'd driven out there to San Diego, and it could be the end of the the journey for many, but you chose to just keep going. I think that was a good move because you went back to Ohio. The things you learned, which I'm sure you're going to tell me about right now, from running that studio, what were the takeaways from that? Oh, many. (laughs) There were some really interesting things. I mean, I, I had to start that studio on nothing, basically. I had my Digi 001 and I bought a um, Personas, it's actually, I still have it here, the Digi Max LT. It was like an eight channel light pipe preamp. So I had 10 inputs and enough money to buy mic cable and 
some half decent mics. I I maybe had like, including construction, I probably had $5,000 in the entire thing. And to try and build it from that into something that would make good records and be good enough for people to come to was was really difficult. That took a long time of like every penny that I made was going back into the thing. And luckily I could do that because my parents were allowing me to stay there and run a business out of their basement. But I learned a lot about finances, just money management started really because things were such a struggle. And that necessity led me to learn a lot about accounting and then trying to read business books and figure out like, well, what is it that people do if they open a hair salon and they want to do well? Like what's so different about what I do that I can't make it work? Huh. I'm curious of like the highlights of that. Like what did you specifically learn? I would say one was just looking at, looking at finances and what I was bringing into it. I didn't want to do any credit card stuff. I didn't want to be in debt from reading some books about the subject and and talking to some people, just finding out like, how does debt work and planning out what do I want the finances of this company to look like and how would I be able to pay any of that stuff off? And, oh, I guess I'm not going to go get an 1176 because that'll screw up my next year or <laughs> whatever, you know, some of that. And a lot of other stuff was scheduling, just figuring out how to properly budget projects so that I wasn't working for $5 an hour instead of the 20 I was trying to charge. So there was there was some stuff there. That's probably the bulk of it was just how am I going to make something work off of a shoestring budget without going into debt? In some ways, I think that in spite of my rant about the studio kind of screwing up like the way they did in San Diego, this was the best possible outcome because you really got thrown into the deep end and you had to make it work and you learned so much. Whereas if you kind of worked in another studio, you probably would have coasted off and focused not on these things that you you learned at your own place, but on other things. And that might have turned out great as well. But what valuable information came from that? That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I think part of it too, before I left for the conservatory, I had a job at a Spencer's Gifts in the mall. And I remember Spencer's. I did not like that job. <laughs> but I learned some some lessons there, but I remember when I left that job, I I turned around and kind of like looked at the place and internally just told myself, you're leaving to go and do this for a living. And this is the last job that you do that doesn't relate to music. So it was kind of a promise that I made to myself at that point. And I remember that every time, every time one of those roadblocks would come up, like the internship or struggling to make it in a small studio with no money or whatever, anytime that I was like, maybe I should call Best Buy and just see if I can go get a job. I would tell myself, no, you made that promise. If you do that, it's just the start of more compromise. I guess I didn't want to start making compromises to what I had promised myself and then continue down a slippery path of like, now I'm selling air conditioners or something like that. I just wanted to stay true to what I decided to do. Yeah. It forces you to get really creative when when you are presented with these roadblocks and you're trying to figure out how to how to keep a studio going. Yeah. One other thing with that was if I didn't have a client, I kind of had this thing in my head. This is from watching my dad, who always had an incredible work ethic. And just thinking back like of how reliable my, my dad's always been at his job and everywhere in his life. Anytime that I didn't have a client, I would still keep working hours. So I would still kind of do like, all right, I don't have a client today, but I'm at least going to put it in an eight-hour day. So that means I'm cleaning the studio, I'm doing maintenance, I'm researching, which there wasn't YouTube or pure mix at the time or anything, but it was just, what can I find? 
drive to Barnes and Noble, see if there's a recording book that came out, you know, those kinds of things. And just putting in the time, even if there wasn't a client, that was kind of a big thing that didn't put money in my wallet. But looking back, if I didn't do those things, I wouldn't be doing this now for a living. So how long did the studio last? Five years, you said? Yeah, well, it was, it lasted about, I would say, 10 years total. There was a little bit of a break in there. And it was the biggest compromise that I was willing to take, which was I did a small stint at Sweetwater. So being in Ohio, I was close enough to Indiana. So I did like an interview with them and was like, oh, I can make some money and I'm only three hours away from the studio. So I could go to Fort Wayne Monday through Friday, leave after work on Friday, drive back Monday morning and still make records on the weekend. So that was the plan. That lasted for about 10 months. And I was spending so much time on the phone talking about making music and not making music that it didn't feel right for me. Yeah, that can be a frustrating position where you're so close, but you're really so far away. Yeah, yeah. And what an experience that was too. I mean, I knew about every piece of gear under the sun from being there, you know, all of the training meetings and they have presentations every morning where the vendors come in and display their new products and I would say that my knowledge greatly improved there, you know, just just learning about different gear and being able to talk to the people that were available and stuff. It was an interesting time, but but there's something that that we're kind of not really addressing here that I want to address and that is is that you kind of need to put yourself in these positions sometimes Spencer's, Sweetwater, working the job you don't like to learn that you don't like it and learn how to get creative of how to get back to the thing you do love. So some people might say, well, I failed because, you know, I've, I've gone back to the working world, whatever. I don't think of it no. as failure. I think of it as, as a great learning experience for you to figure it out, figure out the bigger picture of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I agree so much with that. And I want to be clear on that too. I think I put myself through a lot of suffering that wasn't necessary by making that promise to myself and sticking through to it and kind of being this like bullhead of I'm not going to do another job. Yeah, I don't want it to sound like that was the best thing ever because it wasn't necessarily. And and there's no shame in going and doing those things or or doing things for side money. I was very fortunate, which is not lost on me. I was able, I had my living expenses taken care of, right? And that's that's a unique position to be in. Like I said, my parents were so supportive. They were letting me stay in their house and my dad's trying to watch TV while there's a death metal band playing underneath his feet at double bass. <laughs> you, know, at you do have you the know, best parents and, on the planet. It was unbelievable. I mean, the the pictures are rattling off the walls and that's, it's not lost on me on how unique and special and just, I don't know what I did to deserve parents like that, but that's the only reason that that was possible. So my whole thing about like, I didn't take another job. I was lucky I didn't have to. My parents could have been like, you need to go get another job too. I'm sure that at some point though, your parents like had a good laugh. Oh my God, what is going on down there? Are they, dr- are they drilling into the earth or? Yeah, they were kind of dealing with it since I think the first band I was in, we started when I was 14 or 15. So it was at that point, we were playing up in my bedroom. We were trying to cram everybody into my bedroom and then it moved into the garage and then it moved into the basement. So they were just used to thundering bass in the house. And they had this like year and a half break when I was off at college <laughs> and that wasn't happening in the house. And then they invited me back to do it again. It's incredibly lucky to have them. So my mom said something to me when I moved out the one time I moved out at 18 and moved to San Francisco. 
And we were talking on the phone and she said, well, we, we really miss the sound of your drums coming out of the bedroom. And I was like, wow, they really do miss me. Right. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> well, so what was the next stop for you? So yeah, after Sweetwater, I came back, was making some records some more, but at this point I'm in my mid twenties and starting to think about what is the future of this thing? I'm making $20 an hour. I'm not willing to go take out a business loan because I have five years of financials showing me what this business makes here in Lexington, Ohio. So I'm not going to go take out a business loan to open a bigger studio here, which would allow me to charge bigger rates, but maybe, and I'm in Lexington, Ohio. So I started looking around for something that would be a little bit closer to what I was doing, but not to the separation that Sweetwater was. And I, I got a job at a place called Mills James Productions in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I started out in the tape room there. This is a video production facility. So post-production mostly was the department I was in. I got a job in the tape room while still making records at night. This is only an hour away from my studio. So it would be work during the day, drive home, work on records, work during the day, drive home, work on records. But that eventually led to an audio engineering position at Mills James. And that was mixing Toyota commercials and McDonald's commercials and FX and Victoria's Secret and stuff like that. So I was doing post work at that point. And then that led to some post film work. So now it was mixing audio for video during the day, making records at night and on the weekends or whatever. That was allowing me to actually have some more money and and have a little bit of a life in my mid-20s and see like, okay, wait, I could like have a life after 20. That ended in 2009 in a financial crisis and I was laid off from the position at Mills James and I wound up doing some freelance audio video work after that through a friend who I was in the first band with, um, Sam in Las Vegas, was working with a company making video games for Nintendo. So they were making a bunch of Nintendo Wii games and he got a music composition gig, but didn't really know the audio engineering side of things. Mm. So he got the gig as a composer. They, they had heard music that he had made and they loved it and said, you know, we want you to write for our game. And he said, absolutely. And then he called me and he's like, how do I do this? So, <laughs> so mm. we wound up partnering on the project and writing a bunch of music for Nintendo games for a while. And that was sort of a freelance music position I was doing around that time through a mutual contact from the video post-production place. I met a woman named Cindy Vaughn in Columbus, Ohio, who is an amazing vocal coach. And she had a lot of big credits with some talent shows, like I think America's Got Talent and Star Search, I think. Wow. And she had a vocal studio in Columbus here, and she wanted to start recording her students. So kind of doing like all these freelance things, still making records. And then I meet Cindy, who wanted to build a small studio at her vocal studio. So she hired me on to do that. That kind of kept on going. There's another little sidebar, like while I'm doing all these different freelance gigs, I was in Las Vegas working on the music composition stuff. And I met my now wife while I was there. I was there for like a month working on this gig. And we met while I was there. We started dating long distance, flying back and forth to see each other and stuff. And eventually I decided to move out there because I was just freelancing and I was like, I'm not doing a lot of record stuff right now. It's not very lucrative. Let me go see what's in Vegas. Maybe there's more music composition gigs and it's Vegas. So, well, it's Vegas in the sense that there's work there. I wasn't excited about moving to Las Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, moved there for about a year. And while I was there, Cindy called me 
she kept me on doing freelance stuff, like sending me files to work on and stuff. But she called at one point and said, hey, it's time to grow the studio. I want to buy a building and build a commercial recording facility in Columbus, Ohio. So she basically said, like, I want you to help design it and then let's build it and see see how it goes. And if after that, it's something that you want to work at, maybe there's something to talk about there. So while I'm in Las Vegas, I started helping her more with sessions. She was flying me back and forth to meet with architects and talk to studio designers and stuff. And I would go back to check on construction and everything. But we built this 4,000 square foot facility, 2,000 square foot, kind of split down the middle, 2,000 square feet are a music school with lesson rooms. The other 2,000 feet is a commercial recording studio. And after we finished building this place, she said, I need somebody to run it. It'd be great if it's you. Do you want to move back here? So hmm. that was interesting. My wife had just gotten laid off from her job when that call came. So we were like, back to Ohio we go. But your, your wife wasn't from Ohio. No, my wife is actually from Lithuania. She moved here to get her master's in, in business and she's a financial analyst. So she's much smarter than me. And now she's a data scientist. She was a financial analyst when I met her. Okay, but was she cool with moving to Ohio? Um, <laughs> I should go get her and, and have her answer. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure there was some discussion that occurred. <laughs> There's some discussion that occurred. Yeah, yeah. Lithuania is a little similar in climate to Ohio. It's a little further north, but it actually, the nature part of it isn't too dissimilar. So there was a little bit of, well, it'd be nice to be around snow again and, and some of that. And you got family there and this is an incredible opportunity. I can find a job there because Columbus happens to be like a huge retail hub. There's a bunch of retail corporate headquarters here. So it was, it was a thing where it wasn't going to stunt her career while she was looking for another job. And she obviously was incredibly supportive as well. And there's, you know, a whole discussion to be had there about the support system I've had. Of supported people, your parents, your wife. Wow. So you moved back to Ohio. Do you build the studio? Did it happen? Yeah, we were building it while I was still in Las Vegas. And I moved back maybe three weeks before we opened the doors, I think. So came back and opened the doors and still running today. It's been 10 years this May. So yeah, it's running great. That was a Carl Tatz Designs room that was built in there. A Phantom Focus room? For a while. Yeah. Yeah. Lidge Shaw just did that. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I have to ask him how he's enjoying it. I, th I think he's enjoying it, but I had long wished that I had been to a studio. I was like, man, I want to do one of those, send you off on vacation and redo your studio kind of a thing. And yeah. he was like, oh, I don't know. I'm really attached to all this stuff and how it works. But then he ultimately ended up doing this thing with Carl. So it looks so much better than it did. It's great. Yeah, that's cool. Nice. Do you ever go back there? Do you ever go back to work there? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm actually still the studio manager over there. Oh. Yeah, as we'll get to the Pyramid stuff, but as things started getting more busy, we kind of added engineers and, and did some things to supplement me not doing all of the sessions. But I still manage the recording studio part of it, and I'm still very involved. And the records that I am making, I'm doing all of the tracking at that studio. And then I have a mix room I built in my house, so I'm mixing at home now. But yeah, that was purely a, a business decision too, because when I was doing all of my records over there, like tracking and mixing, I just had the room all the time. And it was like, well, if I was working off a package rate or something, there was just reasons to, for 
for me to move home because it's like, well, we can run two rooms if I do that. So interesting. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Let's talk about Pyramix. How did Pyramix come into your life? So probably 2014, this is after being back in Ohio for a couple of years, 2015 maybe. Being back in Ohio for a couple of years, I was making just tons of records, working at that place for 10, 11 hours a day, nonstop, multiple clients a day. And I kind of got to the point where I felt like I had plateaued. It was just sort of a thing of like, I'm really happy with the work I'm doing. The studio's doing great. Everything's great. This is a lot better than when I was making $20 an hour in my parents' basement. Everything's good. I'm happy. But I feel like I've hit this point where my records aren't getting better. They've just kind of sounded the same for the last year and a half or so. Just feel like I'm hitting a wall. And it's Columbus, Ohio. It's a small network of people. There's half a dozen studios in the city. And it's not like Los Angeles where they have a, a lunch get together and everybody goes and talks and shares and or there's no like studios where I see people in the lounge and talk. So there's a small mm-hmm. community of people here and just felt like I hit a plateau and was thinking like, how do I expand from here? So that time Pensado's place had come out and I loved that show. Like just watched every episode, the moment it came out and all of that. And I went out to something that they were doing. They had an event in Los Angeles that they did and I went out there and hung out like for a, it was like, there was a theater with Jean-Marie Horvat and Dave and Eric Valentine and they were talking and then they were mixing and showing techniques and everything. And I felt like in that one day I had learned more than I had in six months of making records just from watching them. Hmm. So it became a thing where I was like, okay, that trip was expensive. It was, it was airfare and a hotel for a couple of days and all that and the admission to the event. So it was like, this is something I would have to budget for, but what if I started budgeting every year a certain amount of money to attend some kind of workshop like this? And they were just kind of starting to pop up on the internet where you'd be like, Blackbird's doing a one weekend event or stuff like that. So I had 
kind of just become a pure mix subscriber. This is early days of pure mix. There weren't very many videos on the site at that point. And I think after the Pensado one, I did something at Blackbird with Vance Powell for a weekend. Same experience in two days watching Vance track. I mean, anybody yeah. who's, who's gotten to sit in the room with Vance tracking is like, you could do everything I learned at the conservatory. Like I could have learned that in a weekend, just watching that guy work and the amount of art that he brings to the process. And it's, yeah, absolutely amazing. I mean, he, he completely changed how I looked at recording from in two days, you know, watching him work. So the next thing that came up after that one was a pure mix masterclass in New York. And it was going to be at a studio called MSR downtown. Fab was going to be engineering and they were bringing in an artist. We were going to go to MSR for a day and track a song. And then the next day, Fab was going to mix it at Flux. So I went out to that and it was amazing. Again, it was like another glad I spent money on this this year thing. And during the masterclass, Fab was telling everybody what his plans for Pure Mix were. And he said that they were working on a Pro Tools course that was going to be the complete A to Z encyclopedia for, for Pro Tools. So everything you could ever want to know about Pro Tools would be done in video format and was going to be coming, as he says, no later than very soon. And then he said, I just need to find the right guy to teach it. And then he turned around and started mixing the song again. And like from that moment on, all I could think of was like the whole thing that kind of started my journey on the path was I was in the recording studio and I was watching John Finnell work on Pro Tools and it completely blew my mind that music and computers had been melded, my two like passions. And there it was, was Pro Tools. And that was something that just, it completely lit me on fire. I went out, bought my Digi 001, read the manual back and forth. A lot of those days where I didn't have clients, I was trying to be faster in Pro Tools. And anytime I would go to the menu, I'm trying to figure out the shortcut and all of those things. And I wanted to be the best Pro Tools guy I could. That was like my thing for a while. And when I was at the conservatory, I thought this is at a time where there were full-time Pro Tools editors. And that was something that was always in the back of my head. It was like, maybe I could get a job like being the Pro Tools guy at a studio or something. So Fab saying, I just need to find the right guy for a Pro Tools class was like, ding, ding, ding. So I've never really like been the guy to like jump out in a crowd and, and be like, I could do that. Or let me tell you about me. That's like self-promotion has been difficult. But he, at the end of the masterclass, had kind of a goodbye happy hour on the roof of Flux and everybody was talking. And I went over to him and I was like, hey, that Pro Tools class that you mentioned, I think I could do that. I have enough video experience that I could figure that part of it out from my post-production days. And I was like, yeah, I, I'm obsessed with Pro Tools. So I maybe this is something we could talk about. And my hands are shaking because this isn't something that I'm used to doing and everything. And it's fab and all of that. And he was like, yeah, okay. Send me an email on Monday and, and tell me what you're thinking or whatever. So I like cloud nine leaving flux and thinking about it the whole way driving home from New York. And I wrote him this email on Monday thinking like, probably not going to hear back from him. And the next day he was like, hey, let's let's do a meeting with you and my partner and let's talk. And that turned into welcome to the family. And I jumped out of my chair, which over time, like in many other gigs and morphings of that course turned into me becoming the content manager at Pyramex. And that was just a whirlwind, how quick it all happened there. So how long ago was this? This is 2015, I think, 2015 okay. or 16, somewhere in that period. Yeah. So would you say that as far as your involvement in Pyramex, how do you allocate your time? Is it is your time dominated by Pyramex or is it, do you still 
have time to do other stuff? It depends on what's happening with our schedule. That's a big part of it. So there are times where we'll go out on shoots and I'll be gone for, you know, two and a half weeks. And there's obviously nothing but peer mix happening during those shoots for 12, 14 hours a day. And then there's other times where we're in the middle of a release pattern and we've got content that's been edited. And my job at that point is kind of figuring out the content calendar, working with the video editors, QCing videos, figuring out timelines and that kind of stuff. That's a little less time involvement. So it can go anywhere from being more than full-time to kind of like half of my time. Mm, okay. So I, I'm basically splitting it. Most of the time, the balance is like a 50-50 split of like spending my time on pure mix, making records. Well, in one way, I mean, by being the content manager, instead of traveling around to go to seminars, you're actually creating content that you can learn from. Yeah. I'm sure that that's a, a great bonus. Well, that was part of the reason I was jumping out of my chair when he said, welcome to the family too. It was just like, I cannot imagine what I'm going to learn. Even if I talk to Fab once a month or something like that, or once every three months, like just being in those conversations, there's so much that I learn every time that I'm kind of around him. I couldn't have fathomed what was going to happen, you mm-hmm. know, or what, what has happened. That I figured I was going to make a Pro Tools course and that was going to be the end of it. And with PureMix, since starting that, I've, I've gone on most of the shoots and... I've been in all of the big studios I could have wanted to go to and spent multiple days with all of my heroes that I was watching on Pensado's Place and listening to on your podcast and all of that. Like that kind of education is just, it's immense. And there's nothing that I can think of that I would have done to grow as fast as I have by being in the room on those shoots. Even though my brain is focused on how do we communicate what's going on here, I'm watching Vance Powell work and then being able as like a director on shoot sometimes being able to say, Hey, you're in your flow and you probably didn't even realize that you just spun around to your rack and did seven things, but I need you to stop and tell the camera what you just did (laughs) (laughs) or whatever. For the listeners. I just, I want to remind everybody, everything that you just heard from Mark, let's go back to the beginning of the story. What you said, Mark, you said you get out of it, what you put in, right. And all throughout your, your time, your journey, you've put the time in, you've put the effort in, and that's really what makes the difference in the outcome for all of us. At every step, you ran into some roadblocks and you went around them and you figured out what it was that you had to do to succeed at, and, and make yourself happy, make yourself grow as, as, a, as an audio professional. And it finally got you to get out of the house, go to New York, meet fab at this thing and reach out, which if you look back to the, to the kid that was in San Diego flipping out because the studio turned him down and look at the the person standing in front of fab saying, I can do this. I'm sure that those are two very different people. You've grown immensely. I would imagine. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's probably true. Cause that guy was definitely freaking out in San Diego. That was a good moment. I would have been <laughs> freaking out. Yeah. I was freaking out for you as a parent. I was just like, Oh, yeah, they weren't too thrilled. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure they were pissed. Yeah, yeah. I I kind of want to emphasize too. I mean, it's interesting, like thinking about stories I would hear when I was at the conservatory of other graduates who had gone on to do great things. And I would kind of always have the thoughts of like, man, that's a like one in a million thing that happened to that person. Like they were at a coffee shop and somebody huge came in and said, hey, do you want to come and track vocals for me? And then off they went on their career or whatever. It's like, that's never going to happen to me. And then the pyramid thing happening was like the manifestation or like remembering stories like that and just kind of thinking like, well, those are like random opportunities that'll probably never happen to me. It's cool. Like, I'm just going to, 
going to make records in my parents' basement. I'm cool or <laughs> whatever. And when that happened, it was, it was a big moment for me of like, one, it was like that happening to me. That was a head turner. I can't believe this thing pinch me. And then it was also, I think a little bit of an eye opener of all of that stuff. Sometimes we lift people onto pedestals and I do think that like hard work is, is the way to get there. And there's always the sayings of you have to be ready when opportunity knocks. Right. Being ready when opportunity knocks. I've told the story. I don't know. One of these podcasts, I told the story of basically one of my siblings wanted to engage with a member of her community who was a friend of mine. And it's a long story, but long story short, I ended up getting mad and saying, Hey, opportunity does not arrive when it's convenient for you. It arrives unannounced and it shows up at your door and you either open the door and take the opportunity or you close it off and say, no, thanks. And I think that's probably one of the things that you have done over and over again is you've seized opportunity when it's come knocking. It may not have been the things that you wanted to do lifelong, but you get involved, you figure out, okay, this is cool. I can learn this and then move on. But yeah, I think that that's, that's super important for people to realize that you have to seize the opportunity and make the most of it. Yeah. Thank you. Thinking back to what my life looks like now, it's managing a commercial recording studio and, and being the content manager of Pure Mix mostly. And the commercial studio side of it is what gave me enough personal finance to be able to afford going to seminars. And that commercial piece, like running that commercial studio wouldn't have happened if I didn't say when I was in my parents' basement after Sweetwater, man, I got to make more money or I'm going to be living in my parents' basement forever. I'm going to go take this audio post-production gig. So it's like, I can do that whole thing where you kind of look back over your life and you're like, man, if I had said no to the post-production thing, I wouldn't have made the contact that eventually brought me to the studio that I'm working at now. And maybe some other things would have happened or whatever, but that thing set me up to say, hey, I hit a plateau. I need to go do better. Where can I go? I need to find masters of my craft. And that led to meeting Fab and, and so on and so forth. But there's definitely looking back, it's like, man, if I had played that differently, this would be different. You have to be fearless about doing some of this stuff. I think we can easily be intimidated by some of the people that are out there that are further along in their career than us. And so we can be hesitant to approach, to ask questions. I think you just, you have to get over that hump. And you did, you saw, I'm sure it was intimidating for you to, you know, raise your hand and tell Fab that, hey man, I think I could do this. Probably took every ounce of energy. You said your hand was shaking, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So kudos to Fab for, for giving you an opportunity to do that and to prove yourself. Yeah. So at this point where you're at, I'm sure that obviously, I don't think this is the end of the journey. I'm sure if we talk in five years, there's going to be a whole nother huge chapter, but where you're at now and based on what you've learned, what would you say that your big takeaways are that you can share with others? We kind of ran through many of them, but I mean, what would be your advice to that same kid that was stuck in San Diego? I think career advice would probably maybe be more fearless. I don't know. There's, I'm sure that there's things I could have done differently. I'd I maybe could have tried LA. I wouldn't play anything out differently. So it's kind of interesting to think about going back to give myself career advice. There was a part of me that, again, it was like that Midwest thing where I didn't feel like LA was home. And there was something about every conversation I had that just didn't feel right in that city. It didn't feel like a good spot. There's definitely a part of me that could have said like, hey, put a little thicker skin on and 
that's probably going to be fine. And maybe that would have done other things too. I don't know, but I'm not upset with where I'm at either. So it's kind of like, I don't think I'd go and mess with the fabric time too much there or whatever. Like I'm, I'm very content, but <laughs> you and Michael J. Fox, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So on the other side of things, on the artistic side of recording things, I have a lot to talk to myself about. <laughs> That's a huge one. And this, this may be a shift in the conversation too, but I mentioned that workshop I did with Vance Powell, mm-hmm. kind of changing how I looked at recording. And it was literally like a light going on, clouds parting kind of a thing. And just to talk about it really quick, it was two days at Blackbird Studio A with Vance and he brought in a rock band and he told us before we were going, like, we're going to use the Studer on this or whatever. Something like, okay, cool, tape recording, Blackbird. It's going to be amazing. When we showed up, he puts an eight-track head on the, on the producer desk, and he's like, this is what we're using today. And I was familiar enough with his work, but I didn't know we were going that direction. So he puts the eight-track head on the machine and starts quizzing us, like, what do you think we're going to do with this? What do you think we're going to sum down? Are we only going to use eight mics? Those kinds of questions. And he starts miking up the band and he does pretty much like a full mic thing on the drum kit. And he's like, these drums are going down to two tracks. There's a kick track and there's the drums or whatever. And they're going to be in mono. And then he does guitar and he had some distorted vocal mics going. And what he was doing, what, you know, kind of the way that I grew up. And I, I think a lot of us were, were being taught to make records in the early two thousands was you capture good level to tape, you make it clean. And then at least at the time that I was coming up, the way that people were doing things is like, get the recording clean and then you can process everything in the box. You can do whatever you want to. You can do it later. Just make sure it's recorded right. And then we can reamp things. We can get a pod and reamp things. You know? right, it's like right. all of these crazy ideas and like watching Vance, that was his whole thing of the weekend. And it was, pardon my French, but his whole thing was like, make a fucking decision. It was like, that's what he started the entire thing with. And he's like, I'm going to say that the entire weekend. And Everything that he was doing was like, it was recorded the tape that way. It was baked in. The record sounded like a record when the faders were at zero on playback off the studer. And I remember like, I'm watching him do all this. And one, it's like astounding because it's like, there's no denying that that sounds unbelievably good. Like it's like shaking the room and it sounds huge and it's only eight tracks, but I couldn't let it go. And I asked him, what happens if the band comes back tomorrow and they don't like this? He's like, then they can go back out to the live room and we'll cut it again. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess you could do that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm like 14 years into my career at that point. And that was just imparted on me. That was like, how did I go that long without seeing something like that? And it was a huge moment because I was just like, I haven't been making records. I've been doing like audio surveillance the whole time. And yeah, I was like, (laughs) I would get things to sound cool in mixing. And I was happy with my records, but it wasn't that, you know? And it was this huge moment of just like, what am I doing? Like, this is an art and I'm not painting. I'm just sketching. That was the difference. It's like Vance was doing this incredible painting on a canvas and everything I was doing was like stenciling. Well, I think it might be generational to some degree because... Vance is just a few years older than I am, and I was brought up in the tape world. And, that, I mean, that's how it was done. I remember the first time I saw the inkling of Pro Tools, and it was just like like a side thing that somebody had that they were like, yeah, I'm experimenting with this new thing that's that's coming out. But everything was in my early days. I know I sound like the old guy. It was done like that. So, consequently, my transition to Pro Tools brought that mentality. So, that being said... 
I think there's a lot of super talented people that come from your same generation, including yourself, have never been exposed to that. That is important to see it, yeah. to see that that commitment. And that's great that you were able to experience that, especially with Vance of all people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I Such a great say, teacher. I mean, I went home after that and I started a different record. Like we were starting on the Monday after I got back from Blackbird and that record sounded better than anything I had done up to that point instantly. Just from that, just having some guts to make some commitments on tape and like chase sounds and not just it's okay we can we can do whatever we want to later like letting go of that whole thing was like thinking back on it and everything that i've learned since then which you know what was that eight years ago it's not that long ago in the grand scheme of things i guess but it was embarrassing <laughs> i was like how did i not figure this out before that and it changed everything from that moment that is also to tie it into to pure mix i've had the fortune of talking to all the people who made my favorite records, like almost everybody who's made all of the records in my CD collection, but from the time of inspiration at Pearl Jam to, to now my favorite records, I've had the opportunity to talk to them. And the number one thing that's come up since that weekend at, at Blackbird with Vance has been the word intention. And it comes up on almost every single pure mix live stream that we do in some way, shape or form. And it's just the going into something with the idea and the intention of what is it that I want this to sound like at the end? Not, I think I know where to put the mics on the drum kit. Let's go put them in that spot and then hit record and we'll see what the record sounds like. It's making the decision of what the record sounds like before anybody puts a microphone on a stand. Yeah. That's, easily been the biggest takeaway for me with everybody I've, I've talked to. It just always comes up. It's the biggest theme I've seen in, in talking about recording. I'm sure also just back to Pyramix and what you do for them for being a content manager, just learning about all the ways this content is made and the traffic flow of video editors and all of that that comes with that. I'm sure that that may not necessarily be a part of your record making process, but there's little things to glean from from things like that, from interacting with a video editor or or someone like that, and ha yeah. and learn, you know, oh, that's how you do your craft. Hmm, I could steal a couple of those ideas for my craft. Absolutely, yeah. I would say the number one thing when PureMix started happening and the content management thing started happening, and that got more busy with shoots, and I still had records I was doing at the studio, and now it's like, how do I manage a studio that runs? 12 hours a day, plus do pure mix. I'm not saying no to pure mix, but I don't want to lose the studio thing either. What's, what am I going to do here? I had to figure some stuff out. And then we had our first kit and I really had to figure some stuff out. And mm. what happened with pure mix, like taking on the role of content manager became a thing of really understanding project management. And we don't have a massive team at pure mix. We have a couple video editors and there's a whole lot of content. If we go out for two and a half weeks, we come back with six months of content sometimes. So it's trying to figure out, okay, this video editor needs this long to cut this piece of content and then it needs to go to audio mix and I need to QC it and there needs to be graphics and there needs to be copy and there's marketing involved with it. So we have to get it to marketing by a certain point and all of these things start becoming like, how do we schedule this stuff out and manage a project, right? Which just like we have to do with records when there's release schedules and all of those things. but. It's pretty complicated when you're working with multiple people on the team. That was the gig. And that started to bleed into taking those skills that I was, I was kind of picking up very quickly of how do you manage a team like that? That started translating into like, 
my personal life of, okay, I'm also running a studio. How do I start getting the studio? Instead of being a thing where like I have it held so tightly to my identity, how do I make it so that it's the best possible commercial recording facility that I can recommend that my friends go to without me having to be there all the time? So that became like, I need to build a team at that studio. The people that I think make good records and, and can do well or whatever, and I won't feel bad that I'm, people knew that I ran that studio and I didn't want bad records coming out of there. So it's like, how do we keep that going too? So I started taking the project management skills and applying it to other parts of my life. And then my son came along and it went from being like, you have 10 to 12 hours a day to work to like, you have eight maximum, you know? And that's, that's if like everything's smooth. How old is your son now? He's a little over two and a half. He'll be Um, three in May. So shit, you're in the thick of it. Yeah. It's fun. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's amazing. This project management keeps on coming up. So the things you've learned with Pyramix, it seems like you're trying to apply that in other parts of your life. Yeah. All things led to this road of automation. And that was when the pandemic hit, it was kind of at the apex of like everything being super busy. So at that point, my son was just about to turn one when the, the lockdown happened. And it was definitely at the point of like, I have to make some changes or figure out how to do things better. I had kind of been going along that path the whole time. But when the pandemic hit, we started doing daily live streams with Pyramix. And that was a very quick decision. And it was, we did it for a month and a half. And it was, we have to have a new talent on every day. Sometimes those streams would go up to like four hours, five hours. So it, it very quickly went from like, if you have a five hour live stream, it takes a long time to actually set that live stream up. And then there's like, stuff that has to happen before show and after the show. So it it went from like, Pyramix was half of my time to like, all you're doing right now is live streams all the time and we still have a release schedule. And you have these records backed up, but luckily everybody's in lockdown. So those are kind of on hold right now. Nobody knows what's happening with music. But Pyramix went like full on full time, a little bit more with the live stream stuff. And with that, some things that happened were I have to line up guests There's marketing that's involved. There's, again, copy and graphics and all these things that need to be done for every single one of these live streams that are coming up sometimes the day before we know about them or maybe a week before and we have to get all this stuff out. So it became this thing of like, I have to find a way to systematize this and make it run more smoothly. And I found out about some tools from Chris Graham's show, The Six Figure Home Studio, who Chris also lives in Columbus and yeah, there's a whole thing there where like I met Chris and then checked out the podcast and was like, oh, this is amazing. They talk a lot about automation systems on there. I need to have Chris back on the show. He's yeah. been on once, but I need to have him back to talk more about what you're talking about. But I'm sorry, please continue. No, yeah, definitely do. He's he's kind of the king of this stuff. But yeah, I heard about something called Zapier. And basically what that thing is, is you could say like, if somebody schedules a calendar event, then I want you to make a post on Facebook or create a Google Drive, send a Slack message to somebody and also make a post on Facebook. So you can tie all these web applications together, basically. So I started learning about this stuff where it was like, okay, if one thing happens, you can trigger out all these things that happens. And I started looking at everything in my day that was repetitive. So if it was entering a task into Asana, which is like a project management thing, Mm -hmm. or if it was always emailing a Zoom link before every single live stream, things like that, that I was just doing constantly and then trying to replace them through automation. And in the last year, it completely changed my life. And it was at the point where when the live streams were happening, I was ready to hire an assistant. 
like it was going to be worth the financial output to just have help so I could only work eight hours a day if I if I had to with my son being around and everything. And I learned about this stuff at the same time. And I went from working like 12 hours a day to doing like the eight or less if things got crazy at home without any suffering, no lost work or anything like that, because I had built out systems that were taking the mundane stuff out of my days. I'll give you like one more example of something that happened, say for Andrew Shep's show. We do a, a live stream with Andrew every Monday. And to run through the process of that, Andrew finds a guest. Andrew lets PureMix know about the guest, like who it is, and then what date they have set up for it. From there, Andrew's done and we pick up the ball and we have to do graphics, we have to do marketing, and we have to set up Zoom meetings and all of those things. I have to let Fab know who the guest is. I give him a link in case he wants to join the call before we go live. All of these like random tasks need to happen. So if, if Andrew sends me an email and then I get that email and then I have to tell the graphics guy, okay, here's the guest, here's a picture of him, here's a description for the show. And then after I've sent him that email, I have to tell the marketing guy the same information. Then I have to go enter on our content calendar that that thing's actually going to happen on that day. So the whole team knows. Then I got to send an email to Fab and to Andrew with the Zoom link. All of these different things have to happen, right? Let's say each one of those tasks takes five minutes. This is maybe 25 to 30 minutes of work. What I do instead is I built a form that Andrew fills out that all he has to say is, this is the guest name. This is the day they're going to be on the show. Here's a couple of their credits. And here's a blurb that I want to say about the guest. He hits enter and then he's done. The robots take over and it builds a Zoom link, schedules the call, puts the task in the Asana calendar, like in our content calendar to let everybody know, sends off that email to Fab and to Andrew with the Zoom link, tells the marketing guy, puts a graphics request in the to-do list for the graphic designer. Everything's taken care of and now I don't do any of that. So it's I completely replaced my role of organizing this show to happen every Monday to the point where on Monday, an hour before the show, I set up my camera, I sit down, and then I click the email with the Zoom link to join the call. And that's it. So it's that's one example of probably 50 things that I have in my day that are now automated that just takes the mundane stuff out of it. And otherwise, there'd be no time to make music. I know. So I'm sure it took you forever to figure a lot of that out and a lot of focused, okay, what am I, do what am I doing? Who needs to get what? What order does this work? I'm sure there's some trial and error too. That's kind of the thing about it is I wouldn't say that it's it's not the kind of thing that like if you're not a bit computer savvy, you know, if you get confused by your Pro Tools file structure, this probably <laughs> isn't the thing for you. But most people with engineer brains, I don't think this would be hard to figure out. Again, the tool I'm using is called Zapier, and it's very simple in the way of you select what's called the trigger. Every automation has a trigger and then a reaction to that trigger. So if you say, when this app does this, in the case of Andrew's show, it's when somebody submits this form, then I want you to do all of these things. And those things can be almost any web service that you use. You know, you could tell it to create a Dropbox folder with a certain name and then send a link to somebody. So you could say like, create a Dropbox folder and then send an email in Gmail. And it's, it's not programming, it's very point and click. And then you're just like, take this thing from the form and put it in this field and turn it on. And then it just works. So the most complicated part is figuring out what you want to happen when. Right. And you just do that by sitting down with a piece of paper and just write the order of things that you have to do things in. And if hmm. you do that first, 
and then you open up Zapier, that automation for Andrew's show probably took me 20 minutes to build. So instead of doing all the tasks I had to do one time, I just built the automation. That's brilliant. And you, I'm, I'm sure you're applying this to other parts of your life. It's not just Pyramix. You're probably doing it to some degree with your customer management for your audio clients. I haven't created an invoice in a year and a half. So oh. my program does that for me. Yeah. That's great. And sends reminders and all that stuff. So. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a few things. First of all, uh, you mentioned Chris Graham. I'll put a link in the show notes to Chris's episode that he was on a million years ago, and I swear I'll get Chris back on. I'll put a link to Zapier. Of course, I'll put a link to Pyramix, and I'll put a, a link to your website, which, if I'm correct, is markabramsmixing.com. Yes. That'll all be in the show notes, audience, so you can check on all this. Any last words before we uh, sign off? Just thinking back through that story, I haven't really had to tell that story very, very much. And just, it's so evident just how all of the people that have, have been in my life have helped me do the things that, that I do and I couldn't do any of it without them. Support system's so huge and yeah, family and Fab and everybody. Fab changed my life. I mean, yeah. So just thank you to everybody that's helped me out. And thank you, Matt, for your show because it's, it's inspiration like this that, that does keep us going and keep the passion alive. Well, I appreciate you listening and I, I appreciate even more you coming on the show. So thank you so much. My pleasure. This is an honor. All right, Mark, you take care. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Mark Abrams here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. That was a lot of fun. I'm really glad that Mark could join us, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, head on over to workingclassaudio.com, where you can fill out a very simple form and make a suggestion or nominate somebody, if you will, to be a guest here on the show. We really depend on guests, as you can imagine, so that's very important. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the booming voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn or send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>